Hello, friends. Welcome to This Good Word, episode 130. And this one is called Influence. Uh, I want to talk about some questions that feel vulnerable, perhaps for me and for you. Uh, this word influence, is it a dirty word? Is it a good word? When you think about the kind of influence you have in your life and the kind of influence maybe you even would say that you want in your life, can we talk about that or is that just selfish? So I want to ask some questions. What difference am I making in the world and how do I know I'm not wasting my time? I want to help you think that one through. And then who am I to think that I have influence over people in a way that might make their life better? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the shame that comes with that, the vulnerability that comes with that, the thinking that if we think about influence at all in any kind of intentional way, maybe we're being arrogant. Maybe we have too much hubris. And then how do I know my own sphere of influence? Like, who do I actually have influence over? Where does it start? Where does that sphere start? And where does it stop? And then how can I grow healthier as my influence grows? So I want to do a confession. And then I want to tell a story about 20 years ago in my life. And then I want to give some noticings about, I think, how Jesus thought about influence. And then I want to leave you with some questions that I hope are hopeful and helpful for you as you think about this issue of influence. Now, before we get any further, I want to say that I live in the great state of Minnesota. And I've been a Vikings fan for a very long time, uh, going on 30 years now. Uh, because I moved to Minnesota in 1988. I became a Vikings fan when I moved here. And we've had a whole lot of heartbreak, a whole lot of pain, a whole lot of blowing the field goal at the last minute. That's happened to us so many times. <laughs> and this last Sunday night, we were ahead in our first playoff game. If we win this game, we go to the NFC Championships. And we were winning 17 to zero. And then in the second half, what happens to the Vikings always, what always happens to the Vikings started to happen again. The opposing team, the Saints, started creeping back. And then we threw an interception. And then they got another touchdown. And then they went ahead by one point with 25 seconds left. And every Minnesota fan in the world was a seething mixture of rage, anger, resentment, uh, bitterness, sadness, anger, all those things. And then somehow, miraculously, with 10 seconds left, we scored a 61-yard touchdown, Case Keenum to Stefan Diggs. And the whole state, I mean, the stories are still coming out about what people did. Uh, people were screaming and crying and jumping around so much that dogs were literally going crazy. <laughs> like people are telling stories about dogs, like seriously freaking out because they didn't know what to do with their owners. <laughs> and, um, and people weeping. It snowed that day. So after the game was over, people are out shoveling. There's, there's stories of people laughing, bellowing, crying as they're shoveling complete strangers just weeping with each other and hugging each other. <laughs> you guys, it was like, um, 
And it, it, it's honestly, if you don't live in Minnesota, it, it's it's hard to describe. My, my, my friend Charlie said, I get it. I was a Cubs fan. You know, so um, th- th- seriously, it's it's something like that. Like the curse was broken, and and just before I get into the podcast on influence, um, yes, it's a it's a football game. Yes, on one level, it's completely meaningless and on the grand scheme of things. On the other hand, it's just interesting and fun to notice, like what happens when honestly it feels like a curse is broken. The joy that pours out, the the sweet tears of relief that pours out. I know it's just a football game. I get it. I, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. But there's there was something that happened in the fabric of our state for anyone who cared about Vi- the Vikings that I'm still thinking about. I'm still trying to figure out what actually happened because something bigger than football happened in the state of Minnesota and among Vikings fans. I'm not saying God was, you know, helping them win the game. I don't believe that. That's weird. That's stupid. That's just, that's awkward. That's intense. Um, But something did happen that it's hard to explain. So we're going to, we're going to maybe, maybe talk about that later at a later date, but Let's get into this word influence. So first, a confession. I am a, I've talked about this before, and we've talked about the Enneagram before. If you're not, if you don't know what the Enneagram is, I encourage you to listen to Ian Morgan Crone's Typology podcast. Read Ian Morgan Crone and Suzanne Stabile's book, The Road Back to You, or Chris Hertz's great book, The Sacred Enneagram. I'll put those on the show notes, but um, I'm a three on the Enneagram. And what threes do... Uh, when we're actually, when we're at our best is we, um, we can get a lot of things done. We can achieve, uh, lots and lots of things that seem impossible. I I remember just even on a, on a funny level, one time I was on a softball team, co-ed, the intramural lamest thing in the world. And we were in the championship game of the tournament and we were losing by like seven runs. And I just had it in me that I just had to gather that team and give them a pep talk. And this is intramural. Um, co-ed, so dumb. We're totally losing, but I gave them this pep talk. It's like, you guys, we are not losing this game. We are going to win this game. And I just got everybody into it and we won. And so there, there, there is something about threes that need to succeed. They need to achieve success. Now that can be a huge detriment. We can get addicted to success. We can get addicted to who we have influence over. So that's my confession. As I talk about success, I know success. I even said success. I meant influence. As I talk about influence, I know fully well where my humanness in a bad way can take me. I can get addicted to achievement. I can get addicted to the influence I have, and I can just be uh, voraciously searching for more and more influence, and that is not a great thing. So that really is my confession. And then the other thing to say about that is, you know, influence, like if you're maybe a nine on the Enneagram or a six or maybe a five, you know, you may listen to this one and kind of go, what? Influence? I mean, I get it, but what's the big deal? and I would say, so, you know, perhaps um, this one is maybe this episode is perhaps a little more for the threes on the Enneagram, for the eights, for the sevens, for the ones, even for the twos. Um, 
might not be for everyone. I hope there's a nugget of truth for everyone because I do think they're really, everybody has influence. Everybody uh, has influence over others, whether they realize it or not. So um, there is a way of thinking about influence that is healthy and necessary. And also, as I've already stated, there's one that misses the mark. When we're totally obsessed with influence, with who's talking about us, with what our achievements are doing in the world, with more and more and more and more, that's going to miss the mark. On the other hand, there is a way of thinking about it, about the people that we influence that is really necessary and hopeful. So that's my confession. Okay. Secondly, I said I was going to tell a story. Uh, I, when I was 25 years old, I became a youth pastor in the church. And I um, remember I'm a three on the Enneagram. So I came from where I sort of learned how to be a youth pastor is at the, one of the biggest churches in the United States at the time, a church called Willow Creek. Their high school ministry, in which I led and served, uh, you know, over a thousand kids would show up on a on a Tuesday night. And it was, I mean, it was like, think about that. I mean, that's way, 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 way bigger than most churches. Um, their youth ministry was essentially a mega church. <laughs> think about that. And then the first uh, job I got my first youth ministry gatherings for a little church plant, my first little youth ministry gathering was three people. And I honestly had no idea what to do with three people. Honestly, if you would have thrown a thousand people in front of me, I would have failed in many ways. But I think I would have known a little more what to do with a thousand. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with three. And we didn't have any place to meet. We met out in a park. It was in the middle of the summer. And I fumbled my way through a plan for, this is my first meeting with these kids, and I didn't really have much of a plan. Uh, you know, instead of just getting to know them, asking questions, telling them my story, you know, maybe going for a walk, maybe playing a card. And we had three kids. Uh, I, oh my gosh, I just, I, I didn't know what to do. I tried to organize all these cool things. And then finally this, um, one of the girls, she was in seventh grade. She called me out totally. She was one of these girls that was really, really smart, but also probably a little too smart for her own good. <laughs> and she was pretty rude. And she said, you don't have anything planned, do you? And I mean, I was like, oh, man, the jig is up. And I remember going home from that feeling so like such a loser. <laughs> and... um so fast forward a couple years, I actually went to a different church. This also was a church plant. And uh, just like my first church, I my job was to start a youth ministry from scratch. And so we did that, and kids came, and the most amazing kids came. This was in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And we started gathering the, the most amazing kids from um, some from broken homes, some who'd never been in the church before in their life, uh, lots of them with lots and lots of pain and brokenness. And we also gathered around these college students, mostly from the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, that became a kind of leadership community. We ended up with about maybe 30, 35 um, volunteer leaders, these college kids, and we built community with them. Uh, my wife actually was on staff um, as sort of the volunteer director, and she she just had an innate and um, amazing way of creating a sense of community with these people um, that was really like nothing I've ever experienced. Um, so these leaders, 
some of which we I, we still have contact with to this day. That was twenty years ago. One of which, uh, my dear, one of my best friends, his name is Dave. He ended up marrying my sister, right? So, like, he's a permanent part of my life now. And this this time in our lives, when we built this youth ministry from scratch with these amazing, hurting and broken and beautiful kids and these amazing youth leaders. Like now I look back and go, man, that was one of the dream times of my life, one of the golden eras of my life. But in the middle of it, when I was actually experiencing it, honestly, one of the things I thought about most was why aren't more kids coming on a given Sunday night or Wednesday night? You know, we had about 50 or 60 kids that would come to our high school ministry on a Sunday night, which is pretty big. I mean, now that I think about it, like that's a pretty big, especially for something that had just started and it was also in a church plant in Eau Claire, Wisconsin at that time, uh, it was smaller and certain. So, um, but I, I was, I was so obsessed with growing. Like, why weren't we at a hundred kids? There was a ministry in town that would gather more than a hundred kids on a regular basis. And I was like, how are they doing that? Why aren't we doing that? So I was missing the, the, the genuine and real influence I was actually having. I was missing part of it. Thank God, I think, um, because of a gift of noticing and a gift of grace, maybe, I think I did catch some of it. I mean, I, I remember I would gather some of the guy leaders uh, in my garage. We would smoke cigars and have beers and... Um, and this is back in the '90s, um, and I would also I also had a group of people I gathered together at 6 a.m. So I, you know, I I, I think I, I did understand influence on one level, and I understood what was happening on one level. But I also think I, because I spent so much time focused on the people I wasn't influencing and I wanted to influence. And my three on the Enneagram was pretty unhealthy. I needed to succeed in my own eyes in, in a way that would validate me. Not knowing that, you know, 100, I think, was my magic number. If I would have reached 100, I would have felt like, you know, I'm killing it at life. But we all know how that works. After you've hit 100 for a few weeks in a row, then you just, you just raise, the, you raise the number then it's going to be 150 and then it's going to be 200 and it's it's just never going to be enough but that still doesn't stop you from really feeling like oh no i i actually think that is going to be enough right i mean that's going to finally validate me um and so there so this story that i'm telling my 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 days of youth ministry um my sort of last run in youth in youth ministry was at a different church that I sort of stumbled into is a Presbyterian church here in uh, the Twin Cities in Edina. And man, it, you know, I got it. I, I got the job when I was at a really low point in my life. And I felt like I maybe, before I got the job, I felt like maybe I was out of ministry forever. Uh, I, it, it was just bad. Uh, it was in a bad season. And so I got this job and I didn't, it, it, I, I, I sort of had lost a lot of the ambition. But ironically, this was a huge youth ministry. I mean, um, probably 400 kids in the high school ministry, another couple hundred in the middle school ministry, just huge. But I had a staff of 
five or six people that I, it was my job to lead. And this staff ended up being like one of the greatest gifts of my life. One of my best friends, his name's Kyle. Um, he was on the staff and there were some other people, Meg and Lindsay and oh my gosh, Christy and oh, Brooke. Uh, and we had so much fun together. We would go on these ministry trips together. We would, um, laugh so hard together and cry together. We went through really, really significant things together. And what I see now is my influence um, in those years, and really all of those years, was always to the leaders. You know, I think I had some influence over some students for sure. There are some students that I got closer to, but it was always the few. Uh, and not even all the leaders, but always a select few of leaders. Uh, in Eau Claire, it was some leaders. There was a guy named Ernie, a guy named Matt, a guy named Dave, a guy named Mike. And there was others for sure, Heath um, and uh, Katie and, oh gosh, I'm, now I'm losing uh, names because it was so long ago. But then in Edina, it was Kyle and Meg and Lindsay and Brooke Christy and um, and so the real influence I've come to understand the real lasting influence you have I've really come to understand is the few that gather around you for the most that hear your voice the most that or that see you in the most environments that see you when you're at your best they see you when you're at your worst. They see you make apologies. They see you make amends. They see you lead in the best of times and the worst of times. These are the people that you have the most influence over. And if we don't see influence in a healthy way, we'll always be looking to the wrong people to influence, like the massive crowds. We'll always be looking for validation from the crowds, the book sales, the blog posts that are read, the likes and shares that we get, um, the number of people that come to our church, uh, the number of people that come to our youth ministry, the number of employees that we hire at our firm, uh, the market share that we have in our business, you name it. We're going to pick, when we're unhealthy with the influence, we're going to pick the people that we're least close to, to mark whether or not we're being successful. And I'm going to say that is where we miss the mark. We all do it. We all have to sort of get to a point where we're realizing I'm I'm missing the mark. I'm not seeing who I really have influence over. It's it's always the few. It's always the few who see you most, who you affect the most, you talk to the most. And I want to say this, of like I I of your family is the most. It's the closest, it is the biggest. It is the biggest influence you'll ever have. If you have kids, your kids are you have a spouse, your spouse is. I mean, that is undeniably and obviously and completely true. I don't want to miss that. I don't want to lose that. But I also think um, that's a different podcast, honestly. And maybe I will touch that at, at some point. What I'm talking about here is the people mostly that are that you're influencing that are outside of your family. So this could be your roommates. This could be the people that you supervise at work. This could be the leadership team that you lead at church. This could be your small group that you lead, your book club. This could be, uh, you know, who I, whoever it is. Uh, and so um, you need to notice where you're trying to extend your influence and get validated by 
being influential in a way that's outside your sphere. Like when I am doing it on the basis of the number of kids that come to my youth ministry, or now people that come to my church or book sales, or this is all, um, yes, you have an influence over those people, but it's much less lasting. Remember someone told me in my youth ministry days, you'll know if you're a successful youth pastor 20 years after you leave a certain church. So I'm like, wow. So now I'm at about the 20 year mark of my certain church in Eau Claire. And honestly, I'm knowing. And it's about, honestly, maybe it's more than two, but there's two people I know I influenced. You know, maybe three. Certainly there's more than that that I influenced in some way, but really influenced, lasting influence, relationships that still keep up, really there's a, there's about three I can think of. So um, now you might think, oh my gosh, that's, that's wow, that's really depressing. <laughs> so let's get to, as I said, um, the third thing I want to talk about, and that is a little noticing from Jesus. So this comes from the Gospel of Mark chapter 3, and I want you to see the progression here. The first part of the story I'm going to read is starting in verse 7 in chapter 3 of Mark. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumera, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. So, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. And um, so it's unbelievable this reaction people were having to Jesus. They, he was healing them. Crowds were pressing around him. He had to get into a boat so they wouldn't destroy him, sort of suffocate him. And most of us would be like, man, I've made it. Like, this is awesome. This is, I mean, like, I am, I am, I am influential. I am making it. Jesus had a totally different reaction. Um, so he gave people strict orders not to tell others about him. Now, I'm, you know, I'm in the business of selling books, doing things. And if I told my publisher, hey, here's my strategy. When people read my books, I'm going to give them strict orders not to tell anyone about my book. <laughs> it's like, no way, you would never do that. The very next verse, so Jesus is understanding influence in a completely different way. He's not dismissing the crowds. He is touching them. He's healing them. He's addressing them. But then what happens next is really fascinating. Verse 13, Mark 3, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. Amazing. He appointed 12, not 12,000, not 1,200, 12 that's not a lot of people, that they might be with him, amazing, that's influence, be with him first, before they do anything else, that they might be with him, I'm just reading the verses, verse 14, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. So they're named right here in the scriptures, Simon, later called Peter, James, the son of Zebedee and his brother John, 
t- called them the Sons of Thunder. <laughs> so he has nicknames for them. It's amazing. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So these 12 people are who Jesus spent the most time with. They're who he had the most influence over. Now, I'm going to add Mary Magdalene to that mix. I'm going to add Jesus' mother to that mix. Um, so let's just say that out, out loud. Jesus had women followers. It's very clear in the scriptures that he did. When he died, he was surrounded by John and two women, Mary and Mary. So just let's let's just name that and say that out loud. It wasn't just men. But the principle of this is that Jesus understood that he was going to build his movement of love, compassion, mercy, forgiveness, grace, inclusion, forgiveness of sins, the kingdom of God coming, pronouncing peace to a divided world, all this stuff. He was going to entrust that message to 12 people primarily, knowing that he was only going to be with them three years, and then he was going to die and rise again and ascend to the Father, and it was their mission to continue on his work. And really, 12, but you could say really many times in the scriptures, he only brought three with him up to the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. Uh, And there was other healings that he did. It was just those three. So, um, and then, you know, some would argue he really maybe had one, and that would be perhaps Simon Peter, perhaps John, the apostle. Uh, And so Jesus understood that even Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, (laughs) understood something about influence that you are going to have influence over the few that you spend the most time with. And you won't know your influence for many, many years. I found that to be true in my life. And even as I continually struggle with like, you know, ego and success and books and all that stuff, I'm coming to understand more and more and to be at peace more and more with there are a few of people and I can, I'm thinking about them in my mind right now, the people that are uh, outside of my family, but I have the most influence over, I can see their faces. um, I can hear their voices. I I am centered on them. And I know that that's who I have the most influence over. And I think about them and I pray about them and I have pictures of them up right now. I'm looking at two of them and in my office and I'm just more and more settled on that. doesn't mean I don't struggle. I'm still three. I'm still going to struggle with the addiction of achievement, approval, success. That's all going to be a part of my spiritual formation. I'm never going to totally get rid of that. But I will say that I, I am more and more okay with the influence that I have over the few that really will make a lasting difference for a long time. And I'm 47 now, so I'll know. I'll know what influence I had over these people whose faces I'm looking at in about 20 years. <laughs> so there you go. All right, I'm going to end it, as I promised, with just a few questions, four questions for you to think about as you think about influence. And that is, again, you're thinking about family first. I mean, your kids, your spouse, your um, nephews, your nieces, your these are the people that you have the most influence over. So that's, but again, that's a different podcast. So I, I just think you got to, you have to think about this on one level separately. So here are some questions to help you discover maybe who it is that you have the most influence over. And you don't get to choose. That's what's awesome. <laughs> There's going to be some people on this list who you go, oh my goodness, no way. 
So first question, which 12 people do I have the most contact with outside of my family? Just think about it. Look on your phone, see how many, you know, who you text the most um, or who calls you the most or think about the people that you work with, people that you supervise, the people that you study with if you're a student, maybe the people in your book club, you know, the people that are the closest to you. Like, and if you can't come up with 12, who cares? Three, five, six, nine. Um, who are the people I have that I'm just around the most, I have the most contact with? Okay, that's your first question. And then once you have those people, find a way of getting those faces and names out in front of you regularly. Put pictures up around your desk, um, on your phone, in your car. Um, put a list of names. Uh, if you pray, you know, make a little card with their names on it so they're just in front of you uh, a lot. And so they're in your mind intentionally more than just when you see them. And start to just let let God, if you're someone that believes in God, let God um, bring them to your mind in terms of what they're going through, what they need. And so make that list of six, 12, nine, find a way for them to get in front of you in terms of pictures, names, so that you're, you're, they, you're brought to their mind even when you're not with them. And the second question is, regarding those people, what is mine to do today? Like, there's lots of things that's up to them, but like, is there a word of encouragement I need, I need to bring? Is there a word of challenge I need to bring? Is there just a gift of encouragement a, or even a physical gift I need to bring? Like, how can I, what is mine to do with them in a way of influence? Is it an email I need to write? Is it a trip I need to go with them on? Because that's really important. Is it um, a funeral I need to go to? What is mine to do today? How do you figure that out? Because not everything is yours to do, gang. And then thirdly, depending on the season of life that you have, what can you offer to the people that you influence and what can't you offer? You always have something. You always have something to give. Might just be a listening ear. Might be a word of advice. Uh, might even be modeling silence and solitude. Just say, hey, I'm not available for the next two days. That That is a way of influencing people. Um, and But there's other times you just don't have what you want to offer. I remember talking to someone just a couple of days ago and well, actually it was, it was my wife and we were trying to decide on something and this thing we were trying to decide to do, we actually could cram it into our schedule. It was actually possible. But then we both came to the, the realization right away. It's like, just cause you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. And it was gonna, it was gonna be stressful to do it. It was gonna, it was, it was possible. It wasn't like we had something in its place, but we said no. And so, you know, you 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 don't have everything to offer at all moments. Just because you're influencing these people, maybe you've named them. What is mine to do today? But what can you offer? What can't you offer? And then lastly, um, if you can, most days, even just some days, even if it's just one day a week, the more days a week you do this, the more. Um, you're going to get influence better. But just end your day with a time of gratitude and a time of confession. God, thank you for the people that you've brought in my life, for the gifts that they are. Uh, thank you for meeting me in the times that I felt like I had nothing to give. Thank you for giving me another day to breathe in and breathe out. Thank you for the gifts that you've given me. Thank, for, thank you for the people that you've put in my life. 
Thank you for the roof over my head, the bed that I sleep in, the car that I drive, the money that was able to buy my Jimmy John's today, just all these different things. And then also in the day with some confession, you know, when did I, when, when was I more lured by the success of influence that really was outside of my sphere? Is it okay to want to sell lots of books? Sure, it's okay. But if, if it totally takes you out when you get that book sales report back um, and you can't, you know, you want to quit because you didn't get the number of book sales that you wanted or whatever it is for you, just confess that. Okay, God, I, I, got, I got carried away. I, I lost the plot. Um, I lost the who I really am influential over and uh, help me to start again uh, tomorrow. So friends, I've been thinking about this one for quite a while, and um, I wanted to bring this out to you today. Uh, my uh, hope is that it was hopeful and helpful for you to think about who it is that you influence and um, how it is that you can be um, healthy in your influence. So friends, grace and peace, uh, we're limited and limitless, we're human and holy, and we are in it together. See you next week. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow me on Facebook at Steve Weens Author, Twitter at Steve Weens, and Instagram at Steve Weens. And you can find all my work, all my books, the show notes, all kinds of other fun stuff on my website, steveweens.com. And please consider supporting me on Patreon. Lots of fun benefits for all levels of patrons. Check it out at patreon.com slash thisgoodword. Suburban